Hello, Salem Chapel family. It is really, really good to be with you this morning. My name is Will Plitt, and uh, we want to welcome you for those that made it into the uh, building today, and we want to welcome um, so many of you that are joining us online. We're glad that you've taken the time to, uh, to come and worship Jesus, to hopefully be equipped and to be sent back out as, um, as missionaries. So we started last Sunday a new series entitled Sunday School Stories. So I don't know about your history, but my history was that I grew up in the church and because I was an underachiever, anything that attached the word school to it was not good for me. And so the thought of me having to go to school Monday through Friday and then have to get up early on Sunday to go to Sunday school was, um, it would have been less painful if my parents would have dragged me behind the car at a slow rate of speed. So... After many years of therapy, I am convinced, and I do see how the Lord actually used uh, things like Sunday school to, to form me uh, and to eventually lead me to um, understanding more of who Jesus was and is and what he's done for me. Um, so here's what I want to do. For those of you that like to know where uh, the preacher is going, I'm going to tell you where I'm going. I'm going to spend the rest of our time. We're going to unpack it. So here's the statement. Jesus goes out of his way to pursue us in order to save us. Jesus goes out of his way to pursue us in order to save us. Now, my hope this morning and my prayer is that we would all become better at evangelism and that we would become more effective evangelists. And so if you're new to that word, which I know many people, a lot of people, majority of people have not been raised in the church, evangelism is just simply this. This is kind of my working definition. It's everyday Christians, people like us, if you're a Christian, who share the good news. And the good news is simply who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus, his sinless life, his death in our place, his bodily resurrection after three days to conquer sin and death. So it's everyday Christians sharing the good news with people who don't know Jesus. That's quite simply all it is. We do that through demonstration, meaning that we should live lives that are set apart, that should provoke questions. Why do you live differently? Why do you not look like everybody else? And we should also do, that, do this, importantly, with proclamation. We then, as God opens doors in relationships, we need to share the good news with people. So what scripture clearly teaches us and Jesus reinforces in the gospel accounts is that every believer in Christ equals a missionary. Did you know that? It's one of the primary reasons that Jesus saves us. And if that is true, it means that every man, woman, and child equals an opportunity as God puts relationships in our path. So for some of you that are Christian, and you hear the word evangelist, you hear the word evangelism, the very thought of you having to share the gospel with someone terrifies you. You might, maybe in the moment, your mouth starts watering and you start to get an upset stomach. Or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, some of you have been the recipients of bad evangelism. Here's what I mean by that. You maybe saw a man or woman standing on a street corner flinging angry um, condemning words, telling everybody they're going to hell without actually ever telling anybody about the hope that's in Christ. Or you might have had a neighbor, a Christian neighbor, and I'm going to give this Christian neighbor a pass because I believe that he or she probably had really good intentions. But, you know, you were sharing with your Christian neighbor something like this. Uh, hey, I, I got, there's a bat in my house. 
To which the Christian neighbor replies, do you know what BAT actually stands for? It stands for Bible Action and Truth. To which you go, what? What what does that even mean? Right? So if that's you, I'm going to hopefully through the text show you a better way to do evangelism. And if that's you, please please stop doing that. (laughs) So let me tell you why I believe this is relevant for us. Winston-Salem is a city, and you can do all the, the research, the demography and Percep and Rainer and Pew Forum. You can pull all these stats. Winston-Salem now, um, the population of Winston-Salem is 74%, averages 74% of the population of Winston-Salem is not connected to a church now. Did you know that? Most Christians in churches have no idea how, how many lost people are all around us. Did you know that 95% of all Christians globally have never led anyone to Christ. And it also means that eight out of 10 Christians never share their faith. They never share their faith. So when we open the text, so if you have one of these, go ahead and open it to John chapter four. Uh, We're gonna be working our way through verses one through 29. I believe the passage, which is uh, very familiar if you've grown up in church, it's, it's Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Here's what I want to propose this morning. I want to propose to you that the passage we're getting to look at goes way deeper than what we think. So if you're a Christian who's grown up in church, um, could I encourage you today to listen um, with fresh eyes and ears and to, to maybe look at this passage in, in, in a new light as, as God gives you revelation? And if you're not a part of a church or you've been raised outside the church or you've never even heard of this story, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see the great links that Jesus goes to to pursue us and to save us. So let's jump in. So I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, and we'll work our way uh, fairly quickly through these 29 passages. John chapter 4 verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So let me kind of explain and and make mention of a pattern that Jesus has in his earthly ministry. As soon as Jesus begins to get a little bit of attention, he simply leaves He does this many, many times over and over. Sometimes to go be alone with the Father to pray. Sometimes to leave with his disciples. Um, So imagine if you are Jesus' PR director, how frustrating that would be. Like we're getting momentum. The scales have tipped. We have a following. Like we need you to to bolster your social media. Like imagine how disappointing Jesus' social media profile would have been. Right? So he starts to get attention and he leaves. And so of the time, two of the greatest leaders in all of history, Jesus being the top of the list, the son of God, John the Baptist, number two, you had two of the greatest leaders in this part of redemptive history. And Jesus says of John, man, there's no one greater than John. Now, John was a guy that was born slightly before Jesus, and here was his mission. His mission was to tell everybody that the long-awaited Messiah was here, that Jesus is here. He's the Messiah, and he would call everyone to repent, to turn so that from their sins, so that they might not miss what God was about to do. 
So Jesus says, there's no one greater than John. John then would say of Jesus, oh, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Imagine if John and Jesus had gotten to a doorway at the same time. John would be like, son of God, please, I insist after you. And Jesus says to John, no, John, you please go. You know, those who are first will be last, so I want to make sure, you know. It's like, so here's what I want you to see in this opening piece. Is that there was deep, deep humility exercised by both of them. Deep humility exercised by both of them. So here's the first lesson, because this is called lessons learned, lessons lived, right? Here's the first lesson of being a good evangelist. You know what it is? It's simply humility. It's simply humility. Humility, the older I get, the more I realize that that is the platform by which God does great things in and through you. If you're full of pride, you just simply can't be used by God in the way that he desires to use us. It's humility. It's viewing in regard to evangelism, viewing every single person that you encounter as created in the image and likeness of God. It's saying, I am not better than anybody else, but because of Jesus, I am better off. So if you have a pen, I want you to underline something uh, in verse four. And he had to go, and he had to pass through Samaria. Verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Now, let me give us a little bit of context in what is so significant about Jesus making the willful determination and choice to pass through Samaria. What is so significant about the statement here? Well, in order to understand um, the fullness of that statement, you have to go back into the history of the nation of Israel. When the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, the north retained the name Israel, the south, Judah. And because of their persistent rebellion, sinfulness, idolatry, and, and, a, and a long list of kings that, that were not good leaders, God finally handed them over to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians to be conquered. And it's just, that's a whole nother sermon about how God loves us enough to discipline us and that his plans and purposes are never thwarted, even through our disobedience. That's for another day. But the Jews... As a result of this, hated Samaritans. They hated them. And so what happens is when the Assyrians in roughly 720 BC conquered the Israelites, here's what a very aggressive and brutal people would do to these people. They would proceed to slaughter most of the men. That was one thing they did. They would then begin to systematically erase your culture so you would lose your cultural identity of, of who you were and the kind of the people group that you represented. They would then impregnate their women, which then created a mixed race. And this is where the Samaritans came from. And this mixed race, and the reason that the Assyrians did this is that it would destroy their bloodline, the, the purity of their nation, their, their heritage. Then they would also begin to mix their religion in with their religion. So the nation of Israel was monotheistic. They worshiped the one true living God. Then the Assyrians began to mix in pantheism, paganism, and even child sacrifice. 
So it diluted the identity of these people. People. So later, when Nehemiah in the Old Testament comes along to rebuild the wall that had been destroyed and to bring reform, it is stated that Samaritans are no longer allowed in the temple because they are an unclean people. So there is a deep and long history of hatred, discrimination, and prejudice And even so much so that a devout Jew would be rendered unclean if they even interacted with him. So what a Jew would do when they would travel north to south from Judea to Galilee and vice versa, which is about a 120 mile trek, a devout Jew would not even set foot on their soil so so as to not be rendered ceremonially unclean. They would go around Samaria, which added another three days to their journey. That shows you how much hatred was there and here's what every Samaritan knew in Jesus day because they'd been told this they had heard this and they knew this that all Samaritans had to somehow find their way back to God but what we see in getting ready to unpack here is Jesus the son of God is making his way to them it's an incredible picture so here's the second lesson of being a good evangelist Jesus goes out of his way to pursue us. Jesus goes out of his way to pursue us. Verse six, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied, another great word to underline in your Bible. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would translate in our time to about noon. So, I'm not going to camp out long here, but I want to make mention of this because it's so important. Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man. Uh, Theologians call this the hypostatic union of Christ, right? John's gospel was written primarily to a Greek audience. So, John focuses a lot on the deity of Christ, the humanity of Jesus, and the deity of Jesus. But here's what it says. Jesus, fully God... Fully man was tired. Now think about that for a second. He was tired. And you go, nah, he can't really be tired. He had an edge. He had an advantage. He was God. He didn't really get tired like we get tired. But I love the picture here that that John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us. Because it shows how Jesus fully submits himself to humanity. With one exception, Jesus never sins. But he fully submits himself to humanity so that whatever we go through, he can say to us, I get it. I get it. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're burned out. You're redlining. Yep. Been there. Hot, tired, thirsty. Oh, man. Let me tell you, walking around in the desert, what that'll do to you. Feeling the pressure, we're getting ready to see, of talking to an individual who says culture is taboo and off limits. Yep, I've been there. I understand that. Do you know what's so encouraging about this, my friends? Is that what Jesus is saying here is that we can take everything to him. Everything. And when you live a life, when you are serious about the fulfillment and completion of the Great Commission, and you take seriously the work of an evangelist, you are going to encounter all kinds of trials and temptations and tests, and you're going to be frustrated. And he's saying, you can take all of it to him. 
The writer of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that we can take this to him because he is our high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. And the story thickens in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. This well would have been well over 100 feet deep. Listen to the question. She asked, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become... In him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So let me just make a a quick point in verse 12, what she's doing. This Samaritan woman is actually identifying with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's like, yeah, I'm a part of the covenant, the people of God. Yes, I'm a Samaritan, but... You know, our people go back and this is all that's happened to us. And right. She also knows, we'll see later on, that salvation comes primarily from the Jews at this point in redemptive history. Because that's how God orchestrated it. He raised up this insignificant people group called the nation of Israel. And he said, I'm going to work through you to bring my glory to the nations. So we see that, but we also see Jesus now now moving far beyond those boundaries. And when you really get into the text here in the original language, it's very interesting because I believe personally that the woman here off of two statements actually has some sarcastic humor and bantering with Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. Let me explain. She says, "Are are you greater than Jacob who gave us the well? Really? Like he gave us the well. Like what did you give us? That's really what she's getting at. She also says, uh, in regard to living water, you can give me living waters. Now, she would not, at this point, equate living waters with eternal life. You know what living waters meant? It meant stream water, fresh water, versus well water. This particular well, many wells of the day, that the water would percolate up from the subsoil. And you would lower your animal skin or bucket down there and draw it out. So here's basically what she's saying. I'm not sure where you're going to get fresh stream water out in the middle of nowhere. But if you can do that like Chris Angel Mind Freak, then I'm all in. And I will listen to you and I'm all ears. That's, that's where she is at this point. So let me ask you a question in regard to that. Do you ever struggle with, does God love me? I think if we're to be honest, as a follower of Christ, we go through seasons where we ask that question and we're not quite sure that God's for us and why are you doing this and allowing this? Let me me help us to answer this question out of this text because this is kind of an overlooked answer. We know that God loves us and we can look to the cross of Christ and, and, you know, the substitutionary death in our place. We can look at the empty tomb and we can know scripture answers in many different ways. But have you ever thought about it like this? 
that we can know that God loves us because of the incarnation. That just is a, it's a fancy word for God took on flesh and dwelt among us. It means that Jesus, Jesus leaves the glory and the worship and the perfection of heaven to come and live in a polluted, dirty, broken, sin-filled world with sin-filled people in order to pursue us. It's amazing to think about. And when you look at your earthly relationships... Even the very best of your earthly relationships. I've been married for 26 years. We've had hard times and we've had great times. We we have a, a good marriage. But even in the best of your earthly relationships, you know what they are? They're conditional. They're always conditional. It's always give and take. It's barter and trade or I'll do this if you do that. And if you don't do that, I'm not going to do this. Right? We, we, we get that. But what do you see with Jesus here? In the incarnation, it shows that Jesus comes and he makes the first move to pursue us, that his love and pursuit are unconditional. That's why when Paul writes these famous verses like Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him, meaning God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And what Jesus is modeling and demonstrating here is this with the Samaritan woman. I'll take your uncleanliness, and I'll even be viewed as a freak or weird or um, ceremonially unclean or defiled so that you might be clean and have living water. You know, the message of the gospel is not that we go on some grand pilgrimage to find God. Did you know that? That the message of the gospel is that he came to find us. That's the beauty of Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Jesus took on flesh 2,000 years ago to come and save us even before we knew we needed to be saved. And what we're getting ready to see is that he does this for the woman at the well. Then he's gonna do it for an entire Samaritan village. And you know what? He even does it for us today who are listening. Verse 16 through 18. Notice how Jesus changes the subject. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I would like to propose another perspective here. Growing up and and, and even hearing this passage and reading this passage more times than I can count, and I can't count very high, but it's a lot. always heard this kind of taught and read in the context of this is, you know, the immoral woman. The immoral woman who has gone from man to man to man to man, who's currently living with a man who's not her husband. But once you dig into the context and into the culture of the time, there's something very interesting that you find. You find that she was actually a victim. And let me explain, let me unpack this. Notice in this passage, we're going to read it in its entirety, Notice in this passage that Jesus not one time in no place ever calls her to repentance. Now, if you flip a few pages over to John chapter 8, the woman who's caught in adultery, 
right? After they, you know, want to kill her by way of stoning, Jesus says, hey, who's left here to condemn you? And she says, no one. Jesus says, neither do I. Then he says, what? Go and sin no more. But he doesn't say that in this passage. So let me propose another uh, perspective for prayerful consideration. Let me talk to you about divorce of the day. When a man divorced his wife, he basically defaulted to one of three schools. The first school, which is a very strict and a very conservative interpretation of the Torah, which was the Shammai. And here's what the Shammai said. You could only divorce your wife because of unfaithfulness. Clear, plain and simple, black and white. You then had the Hillel. Now, the Hillel was much, much more liberal on... on, um, being able to divorce your wife. Now, here's a few. This list is not exhaustive. You can go look this up um, on reasons you could divorce your wife. Are you ready? You could divorce your wife because she burned your dinner. There's some nervous laughter in the room. I, I feel you. You could divorce your wife because in public, she spun around in such a way that revealed her ankles being seen by another man. You could divorce your wife because she talked bad about her mother-in-law, mother-in-law or your mother. No, no laughter there, is there? <laughs> there was an even more liberal thought or school of thought called the Akiva. And the Akiva said this, that as a Jewish man, I could divorce my wife if I no longer found her attractive. Meaning that her looks served me. And when her looks didn't serve me anymore, I could go trade my 40 in for a 20. And you could have continual monogamy with multiple women. So what it means is this. A woman of the day could not divorce her husband with one exception, and it was unfaithfulness. But listen to the process she had to go through. You talk about a jacked up system. She would have to get a male advocate. She would also have to get two eyewitnesses that caught her husband in the act. Then she would have to go plead her case in front of a tribunal. And even then, oftentimes, it didn't go well for her. So here's what I propose that I believe is is actually more in line with the way we should be seeing this, her as a victim. It means that she either had five husbands who had died or five husbands who had divorced her or a combination of some that had died and some that had divorced her. And because of the text, not specifically getting into the issue of sexual sin, adultery, fornication, sex outside of marriage, cohabitation. Jesus deals with that in in other places in the gospel accounts. Here's what I believe we see, that she was a victim. She had been devalued. She had been overlooked. She had been passed on from man to man and mistreated. And what does Jesus do? Jesus sits down with her and he treats her as a human being created in his image. And we're getting ready to see that he even will have a theological discussion with her. And then he will offer her eternal life. Now, what I realize is this. You don't know my story and I don't know your story, but some of you have lived in rejection pretty much your entire life. 
You've lived in rejection. And you wrongly think that God will just reject me. He couldn't love me. He won't accept me. He won't approve. You just think God's in another line of, of rejections. The, the other side of the coin is this, that we sometimes will view other people as too far gone and out of reach of the gospel. Oh, man, no way. No way God could save that, that individual. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's dismantling both of those wrong beliefs, and he speaks to both of these issues. And I just want to encourage uh, as a man and all the men that are listening to this, would you take a moment, maybe today or this week, to identify with this woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, that Jesus comes to meet with her. So here's the third lesson of being a good evangelist, that Jesus goes out of his way to pursue people no one else wants. Now, notice how she abruptly changes the subject. It's like going to the dentist and they hit that spot on your tooth that makes you stand up in the, in the chair. They hit that nerve, right? This, this hit close to home for her. Listen in verse 19. This is the theological um, discussion. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Changes the subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Remember, I alluded to that earlier. And I lost my place. Give me one second, please. Um, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here. Listen to this. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this theological discussion that he has with her goes back again to the reforms of Nehemiah, where Samaritans were not allowed to worship in the temple. So you know what they had to do? They had to go find their own mountain to worship on. They had to go find their own temple because they couldn't do it there. But here's what the incredible truth about verse 23 is for us right now in this place. When Jesus says the hour is coming, it is now here. Do you know what it means? It means that we can now worship him in Winston-Salem. We can worship him in this building today. We can worship him when we get back in our cars. We can worship him at work tomorrow. We can worship him around the dinner table. That, that all of life is a worship and that wherever we go as the temple, God goes with us. In every other Christ-centered church across our city and across our nation and across the world, the good news is that we can worship him now because of what he has done for us in those places. Verse 25. The woman said to him, now, this shows that she knows a lot about the Messiah and she's waiting for the Messiah. The, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, what a powerful moment that must have been. I who speak to you am he. And here's what we see in the fourth lesson of being a good evangelist 
is that Jesus goes out of his way to save people and reveal himself to us at our point of greatest need. Jesus goes out of his way to pursue us, to pursue people that no one else wants in order to save us. Why? In order to bring us dignity, meaning, and kingdom purpose. Now think back if you're a Christian. That's, that's us as Christians, right? We, we are the woman at, at the well here. I, I look back at my own life. I, I was living my own version of Samaria. In, in regard to God, I was an alien. I was an outcast. I, I was his enemy. I was hostile to him. I was dealing and living in immense guilt and shame for falling short in my living and in my thinking. When God revealed himself to me and to you and showed us our need for Savior. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. Remember, they had gone to go find some provisions. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Like the word marvel there, it means like marveled, like astonished, like are you kidding me? But no one said, listen to this, <laughs> no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Like the disciples are slowly getting it and probably out of the 12 disciples there, all the 11 disciples are hoping that Peter doesn't say anything right now. Like Peter, no, 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 please, please don't say a word, don't say anything. They marvel. Verse 28, so the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, listen to her message, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Answer, short answer, yes. Yes. Yes, it is. Look at what she does. Look at what she does here. She goes and she tells other people. What is her message? Her message is this. He knows everything about me. Come and see. He, he knows everything about me. And out of the overflow of her heart, namely what Jesus does for her, she can't wait to go and tell other people. Now, let me let some of you, if you're especially a Christian for a long time, off of the hook when it comes to evangelism. What is her message here? He knows everything about me. Not, well, I got to sign up for the Alpha course. I got there's, there's four uh, apologetics courses I need to take first. I need to make sure I read John Frame's Introduction to Systematic Theology. I need to make sure I've memorized Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism. None of those things. Come and see this man. Do you realize that the call to receive the gospel is simultaneously a call to share the gospel? Right? It's the message of he knows me. He loves me. He pursues me and he saves me. And when you flip a few pages over into John chapter 17, this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays for us, his disciples and us. When you get to verse 18, it says this, as the father has sent me, so now I send you to where you live, to where you learn, to where you work and to where you play. And here's the bottom line. Will we open our mouths? It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Here's a concluding thought that I want to leave you with as I reflected um, over my journey with, with Christ and the many, many people 
Uh, as a pastor over the years, I've, I've counseled and discipled. And Here's what I want you to know. No one is beyond help or hope. No one. No one is beyond help or hope. And my hope through this passage today is that we would all have more of a holy courage to share our faith and that we would be motivated to, to be more faithful evangelists. And now, now listen, this is not a, a message to, to guilt. I'm not pulling out my guilt bat to, to beat you across the shins and tell you that every person you know that doesn't know Jesus is going to hell and it's your fault. But rather, what if we went back and we remembered the great lengths that Jesus went to to pursue us and to save us? When we do, it changes the motivation of our heart from evangelism isn't some duty or chore I have to perform, but rather it is a, a, a joyful delight that I get to participate in. It's completely different posture of the heart. And the more convinced we are that the good news is actually good news, the more persuaded we will be to share it. So, I would be remiss to not say this. For, for the women who are listening to this today, who have experienced abuse at the hands of of wicked and cowardly men. Jesus is inviting you to receive the living waters. And you know how big his grace is? Even for the cowardly, cowardly and wicked men who abuse women, you may be forgiven too. You may repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. And that a big cross? Here's what I see this morning as I look out. I see people created in the image of God who have a story of how God has pursued us and saved us, that he wants us to simply tell others. And here's my one pastoral coronavirus illustration. I heard a pastor say this, and he is now sneezing us out into our cities. That's kind of gross, I get it. Like a virus. We don't have to over-engineer like the church has done on what evangelism is. It's a simple message of come and see. Jesus knows everything about me. He knows me, he pursues me, he cares for me, he loves me, he has saved me. And I pray that the Lord would give us courage, all of us courage, to become fishers of men. Let's pray together. Father, I just simply want to pray this morning for those that are listening who have never experienced your goodness, your grace, and your forgiveness through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that right now and today they may, may receive and partake of the living waters. Your word says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and with our heart believe that God raised him from the dead, one can be saved. I pray that you would give by your spirit courage to the men and women 
who have never laid their life down. Father, I pray for those of us who call you by name, who more than likely fall into the bad statistics of 95% of all Christians have never led anyone to Christ and eight out of 10 Christians never share their faith with anyone. I pray that it would not be true of us. And Lord, that before we can be a good evangelist, you, you have to do the work of changing the desires of our heart. Lord, would you break our heart for what breaks your heart? Would you enable us to see the harvest, the, the, the vast harvest of lost people the way you see the harvest? And Father, if we would be so bold to pray, once you change our desire, might all of us pray and ask you to put one person in our life who is far from God but close to us that we might through living a different kind of life that provokes questions and opens a door for us to share with them the good news pray for our city for our state, our nation, our world where the vast majority of people do not know you Lord may we take seriously the fulfillment and the completion of the great commission for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. And we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.